Hi everyone. I hope you found some uh, nice lunch to eat. Uh, okay, so um, <clears throat> let's begin. Just going to start with a little bit of sitting, and I'm going to play a, a piece by Titnat Han, who is uh, always good to turn to in terms of inspiration for finding our way back home. So you can just close your eyes and listen as we go into a little bit of a more meditative space. We begin our journey of reclamation. May the sound of this bell penetrate deep into the cosmos. Even in the darkest spots, living beings are able to hear it clearly, so that all suffering in them cease, understanding come to their heart, and they transcend the path of sorrow and death. Of the rising tide is heard clearly. 
the miracle happens, a beautiful child appears in the heart of a lotus flower. One single drop of this compassionate water is enough to bring back the refreshing spring to our mountains and rivers. Listening to the bell, I feel the afflictions in me begin to dissolve. My mind calm, my body relaxed. A smile is born on my lips. Following the sound of the bell, my breath brings me back to the safe island of mindfulness. In the garden of my heart, the flowers of peace bloom beautifully. Those who set forth on this path should give birth to this thought 
Whatever living beings there are, in whatever realms, I shall work to free them. And though I free living beings, not a single being is liberated. And why not? No one can be a bodhisattva who creates the perception of a self, of a being, a lifespan, or a soul, so teaches the Diamond Sutra. Still, if someone should lean towards you on a cold, forsaken night, inviting you to leave your castle wall, lean with her into your deepest hope, because the storm is coming. Do you feel the ardent scream in our heart-molten agony rising on fire from the torture of the earth? I dream of a wild forest of parrots and monkeys. Maybe one day we will return. Earth dust walkers, together through the tangle we stumble to reclaim wild shamanic power of the heart's pure peace pulse. In the quiet release of identification from the fired and wired off sync brain, merged with the machine, Prajna, intuitive intelligence of the deep, rewires. She pours living truth into us and leads our way home. True heart home, soft heart home, fierce heart home, generous heart home, merciful heart home, swift protection heart, invincible courage heart, True refuge heart, destroyer of negativity heart, bliss and equanimity heart, remover of sorrow heart, transformer of poison heart, serene peace heart, distribution of wealth heart, impeccable virtue heart, joy and laughter heart, sublime intelligence heart, creative wisdom heart, worthy of honor heart, foundation in freedom heart, Radiant health heart, ferocious compassion heart, all victorious heart, complete enlightenment heart, aware heart, present heart, Avalokiteshvara hands and eyes heart, gate gate, paragate, parasangate. This mantra is true and not false. Mother of the Buddhas, matrix of creation empty of all distinctions, your true heart hears all beings, their beginning and their end. Your true heart is not the seer or seen and is both. Just this, parasangate, bodhisvaha. Everything now means nothing except how much you reclaim your human that loves your life, your earth, you're all other living beings and every flower pushing through concrete on your way to work because this is the moment we've waited for, the moment for wild, the moment for wild prayer, flash mobs and for occupying the corners of fascist madness. Sit your ground, stake your truth. And should you be brave, then shout out, 
to the far corners of the walls until the force of our sound together demolishes every carefully positioned brick. Contemplating all of this, this rather large uh, territory that we've delved into today, of us and our evolutionary journey, um, and the way that that is coming to a particular sort of fulcrum in our times, there's something about as we move into the contemplation of reclamation you think of reclamation of our bodies from the energetic wiring into these um, limiting and repressive and internally oppressive systems the, the, the reclamation of the body so it's freer more open in its energies can, fro- can flow more freely not constricted in these deep patterns of where we hold and where pain is held. Eckhart Tolle calls the pain body. It's a very good expression. To feel the body can also be a place of pleasure. In meditation, the samadhi practice, the gathering, to feel the sensory experience of the body as pleasurable, even in a, a, a very small way. Um, just to be able to savor the sensation. You know, we, we usually override that subtle experience of sensation because we're used to strong sensation, maybe strong painful sensation, but actually even the subtle tingling, flow, breath. So retraining a way of relationship in the meditative process, the whole territory of the middle part of the path, some some samadhi, gathering, focusing, meditation, is actually relearning a different relationship. And the factors that support samadhi absorption, two very important ones are ease and um, a sense of um, bliss, joy, of our embodiment. And that might sound a bit too high of a reach, but one can even in small ways, you know, just to reclaim being in our body, reclaiming the body and feeling and working into the places either through meditation, through therapeutic process, through body work, through deep shamanic work even, where we start to free up these places and ways that we ancestrally and genetically and culturally and collectively inherit a heaviness, a a repression of the body's energies. Movement, dance, opening. Um, the reclamation of, of the heart, soul, 
And sometimes when we are so in the cognitive, we're, we're thinking and thinking and thinking things through and overthinking and strategizing, that's not necessarily a medium for intuitive leaps that bring about radical shifts. And we have to, you know, the, the language of music, the language of poetry, uh, the language of deep communication with another, um, the language of stillness and silence, that it's not a dead silence, but very alive. Um, you know, this sort of reclamation of the language of the soul. You know, we're so sort of, it's so sometimes uh, devalued. And what is heightened is the, the cognitive brilliance of the techno mind and how it sort of puts a scapel to the world and can diagnose and cut through and see everything as an object to itself. Um, extract knowledge, but not in the way that actually heals or resolves or brings a sense of completion or brings love and joy and connection and beauty the sort of beauty and love and joy and connection and devotion that, you know, you would die for. Sacrifice. Because it's so beautiful. You know, we lost that. You know, it's that, that sense of that soul language. You can't own it. You can't sell it in the marketplace. And the reclamation of the mind that is patterned in these diminished narratives, these um, self-constricted uh, internalized the, the projections onto the self of diminishment and the projections onto the world. Oh, I know this, I know that, and this is just like that. And so we start to the mind, as it says in the Heart Sutra, we live within the walls of the mind, of the separative consciousness. They are like this and that's like that. And it gets smaller and more harder to move out from. And we feel that those walls are protective and yet they're actually killing and denuding us from that life force of which is moving out and opening and curiosity and vulnerability and unknowing, meeting, the, meeting what is, that curious openness. I don't really know actually. I haven't got it all figured out. And so that the mind can reclaim its innate, uh, the, the jitta, it's, it, it's the, the depth of the mind ground, luminous, clear, clarity, reflective, discerning, seeing clearly, not deluded, not caught up, can, can really sense and see the difference between the, the delusions and what's true and authentic. This is our human vehicle. You know, so this, the work of honoring this conduit for the Dharma, this conduit for the authentic life force that's opening the consciousness as it's evolving and awakening us. It's not like we're awakened. We're being awakened by consciousness itself. That's the primary element uh, of what is. You know, and then we have this idea from the ego self or the sense of self, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. <laughs> it's being done to us. And we have, it's like so opening 
and hearing and allowing that movement of awakening to happen through this form, it can actually, it might burn our life down to ashes and then a phoenix can rise out of that, but something will change. You know, you don't actually go into the awakening of consciousness and think that we're just going to stay in our same patternings. So it's, you know, it's why these metaphors in the spiritual life when Ajahn Chah, a teacher that inspired me very much, led, I suppose, into my commitment to the monastic life for many years, when you would turn up on his doorstep, he would say, have you come here to die? And you know, I've come to be, be enlightened, you know, to get something. You know, go away. <laughs> come back in a few years, you know. You know, it's like, he wasn't that impressed with us going out to get enlightenment, whatever that was. You know, he wanted to know, have you come here to, to put it down? Well, when, one of the very early times that I, I met him and he just turned to me and said, have you had enough yet? I mean, I was only 20 and it was like, I've got lots to get yet. But it was, but I knew what he was saying. However much I would get, it would never be enough. I had the, the wherewithal at least to have a sense for that. It didn't mean that I could actually not go out there and try and get stuff. But it's, have you had enough experience? When is it enough for us as human beings? You know, we've nearly consumed the whole planet. And we're finding more and more sophisticated and gross and destructive ways to do that. And yet... It's not enough because that's the fundamental delusion that we operate under, that we're poor in here, we're impoverished, that this is not enough, this heart, body, soul, this communion with life, this participatory way of belonging within the web of life. As we know, we've lost that, so we have to just grasp and build empires and uh, and actually, ironically, feel more and more impoverished along the way. You know, and then grab the power and then fear everyone else that could come near it. So we can't empower others, we can't bless others, we have to compete and we have to hold our, our you know, our castle and build our, our walls, create the moats. So there, there is other ways of being in this world. And, and we know that. And the poets tell us. And the music and the dance, and love, and falling in love, and being in love, and the innocent, and the animals, the children, that aren't in the game, have nothing to lose. They come to us with complete openness. It's actually really poignant that we don't receive that. So this decolonizing body, heart, mind, soul, from these structures, from these uh, oppressions, from these false narratives. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, we need a lot of kindness, we need a lot of compassion, but we also need a certain amount of ruthlessness to look at how we collude, to look at how we bullshit ourselves and everyone else, you know, to actually reclaim something authentic, to be truthful. You know, I, I remember one of my monk friends saying that, that one of the very first Dharma talks he heard in Thailand, a senior monk said, you know, it's okay that you're suffering. And for him it was a complete and utter 
relief because he'd gone through his life feeling that he was a failure because he was suffering. You know, it's okay to admit that we feel like we failed. I mean, that in, a, in America is like a terrible thing to say. You know, that it's, it has to be successful. Everything is about how you can be successful. But, you know, you, <laughs> you're not going to always be successful. You know, we're going to feel like we don't know. We're going to feel weak. We're going to feel vulnerable. We're going to be a mess. It's very messy. We're going to be betrayed. People are not going to like us. I mean, even the Buddha, people were trying to kill him a lot. I mean, that wasn't too comfortable, I'm sure. You could have gone, but I'm the Buddha. You know, it's like, yeah, right, let's take you out, man. (laughs) You know, it's like, I'm nice, I'm spiritual. Yeah, I'm still going to do you in. So, you know, we can't be naive. So reclaiming the heart isn't a state of, you know, is an openness, a vulnerability. It's like I put forward trust and operate from that currency, but I'm not also naive. I also can have fierce compassion, I can have boundaries, I can challenge. So I really want to explore this afternoon, I think. Um, I mean, I I think what's important to say is once we've diagnosed the whole sorry story, that, you know, probably it's important to acknowledge to say one has no idea how this is all going to turn out. There's lots of projections and and proliferations and perhaps even prophecies. Um, And our mind can do a complete number on it, you know, from the sort of knights in shining armor coming in at the last minute and rescuing us all with great technology or, or, you know, complete and utter destruction. Um, But what we do know is, what we can know as practitioners, is that we can meet what we don't know. But we're not not to meet that with um, fear or collapse or sort of Pollyannish hope and denial, Uh, but to meet meet life realistically. You know, as one meditation teacher said, meditation is the art of being realistic, to be realistic. You know, it's, um, none of us are going to get out of here alive <laughs> in this form. <laughs> That's already the beginning. So, you know, in a Buddhist practice, to contemplate death is actually, you know, Ajahn Chah said, do it every day. Do it three times a day. You know, it's like because it will help you prioritize and because it will be realistic. You know, we don't know how long we have. We know that it's life's very fragile. We know we have an illusion we'll be here forever. But to it's like sitting on the edge of a precipice. And you're going to have to leap. And you don't know where that leap will take you. But you're open. You know, as you're leaving behind all of the safety structures, what if, I must plan, I must, and all of that. Yes, we do all of that, but in a deeper way. Yeah, and then to, until you start to feel into what is really important here. What is, what is important at your soul level, at your deepest heart? 
And that's really what it would be useful to explore. Not in terms of what we're going to do all about this, because there's lots of doing and there's lots of things we can do. And we could sit here and talk about all sorts of things we could do um, on a political and social and economic and community level. And that's very good and important and we should do lots of stuff. But like looking at where are we doing from? What's the consciousness? And actually, where do we land in this in terms of our passion? What is, what is really important for us if we have a limited time, if we're sitting on the edge of that precipice, if we have to leap? Where do we want to leap to? You know, and you say, well, you know, there's all sorts of things to consider, my finances, my social peers, my, the internal voices from my parents even about what's right and what isn't the conditioning, the things that keep us in a certain track. So, okay, there's all of that. You can put that to one side. But if I was really going to leap without any of that, where would I want to leap to? Or maybe it's not a leap. It's just a, a sense of moving to from this freer part that actually is speaking to us all the time, this jitta, this intuitive awareness linked to the deeper intelligence and living dharma that is unfolding and not bound by death, not bound by fear, not bound by strategy. Open, free, is our deepest nature. So tuning into that, what is it saying? Where does it speak to us? How does it speak to us? Where is it, where is it moving us? Or as my dear friend Adrian Harvey would say, you know, what wakes you up three in the morning in a sweat that you worry about? And, you know, it can be personal, it can be planetary, collective, communal. And then in the morning, you get up, what, what one thing can you do about that? What is it, that, that thing, that, or what is the place that you, this, all of this, where does it touch you in terms of what's needed and what response? So... This is really moving in the bodhicitta. The bodhi is the awakened jitta heart, mind. You know, this term jitta, when, when, when the forest masters, train, I train in the forest school of northeast Thailand, and they talked about the liberated jitta, the liberated heart. Um, they would talk about it as a as a shift of lineage, as a shift of lineage, sort of shifting your orientation from the lineage of samsara, of me endlessly doing this and on the track of my collecting of experience and um, all the strategies that go with that and all the ups and downs that go with that and the sense of time, the sense of getting where somewhere, the sense of up and down, success and failure, love and hate, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, you know, the drama of it all. Um, this shift of lineage, it's like a movement out of that track. And what is what they articulated, or particularly Ajahn Lee, I think, or Ajahn Mahabhu, articulated as the lineage of the Buddha, 
the jitta, the butho, the awakened, knowing, luminous heart that never dies, the undying awareness. And that becomes our lineage. That becomes our lineage of, of, of we're in the lineage of awakening, the lineage of the realized ones, the lineage of the Buddha. So this bodhicitta is that shift, the bodhi, the awakened jitta heart, the awakened heart. When we first begin to practice this path of awakening, often we, you know, we, we get drawn in because maybe we're unhappy, maybe we, we are, you know, want to have more, um, cultivate ourselves more as a person which is a very, very worthy intention. And to be clearer, I'd like to, to, uh, I'd like to be more successful. There's nothing wrong with that. The Buddha taught pathways to success. There's a whole teaching if you want to be successful. There's definite teachings around that in material ways as well as spiritual ways. There's certain qualities of mind and heart to bring together to support the fruition of what you're aiming for. You know, this um, chanda, the first one, chanda, to, it means to, it's like purified desire, it's like clear intention, clear volition, to really get that set. Uh, virya, energy, to support that, carry something through, so you're not collapsed, you're not driven, steady. You have a realistic way of sort of tracking something you're bringing to fruition. Jitta, which means the heart, mind, samadhi, having some samadhi, some gatherness, some strength of focus. You're not just dispersed and diffused and just jumping from here and there, that you have some steadiness and samadhi. But also jitta means that what you're aiming for um, has heart. And I've met a lot of really successful people, a lot of wealth, a lot of power, a lot of position, but they still don't feel successful, actually. You know, a very dear friend of a top seer in South Africa, um, very, very brilliant, perceptive, ruthless businessman, actually. Um, and he had everything. And I remember once, at one, some kind of slightly weird Johannesburg dinner party with bankers and gold traders and you know, not quite my usual company, <laughs> politicians, ANC members, and they were all sort of knocking back the wine, which was actually quite a relief for me because the more pissed they got, the more they relaxed. Because, you know, when they were in their kind of repartee, sore-fighting mode, it was very stressful for me to watch over the dinner table. So they started to relax. I was sitting next to this guy and... Some of you know this story. And he just started, to, like a confessional, just started telling me about how many nightmares he would have at night. And I was listening to all this, and I said, well, what do you do about that? I kind of went into my therapist mode. So how, <laughs> how is that then for you? And he said, no, I just repress all of that. So I said, well, what happens then? And he just said, no, I just, you know, I just feel... No, he's just talking about fear. He has all this fear. Like he, has to, he had to trade on the... Um, stock market, millions of dollars, and, and sometimes would lose that. Always fear, like, so, okay, you have all this fear, and so what happens? I repress it, so what happens? I have nightmares. So what do you do? 
He said, well, I just, that's what I do. I said, okay, so um, when is it enough for you then? When do you get to stop what you're doing? And he said, when I'm successful. And uh, he didn't feel successful. So, so you can have a lot of power. You can have a lot of chanda, intention, volition, strong intention. You can have a lot of virya to pull something off. If you don't have the jitta, you don't have the heart, if you're not really deeply in the sense of community, communion, if you're not in that sense of service to, not just what I can get, you, there's a sort of happiness in what I can get, but it's not very profound. You know, the Buddha at his enlightenment, he said, after his enlightenment, he says, one that has nothing to serve lives unhappily. So what are we serving? You know, we're serving, he said, I'll serve the Dharma. Well, that means serve life, serve it all. You can't get better than that. But the jitta is like this relational, you know, how to bring it back, how to develop that heart, how to have that heart with samadhi. And then this last of the four factors of the idipada, the, the pathways, the powers that bring about success is vimungsa, which means uh, basically you translate it as feedback, discernment. How is this going? So you can have a lot of the other qualities, but if you don't have like feedback, you can go on a track and go, that's wrong, let's just move it here. It's that adjustment, moving. So it's a fluidity. So when those four are operating, chanda, volition, um, interest, focus, strength of um, the focus of where you're going, um, uh, virya, sustained, nourished, um, resourced energy, so you're not just, like we do in our society, we override, we push, and then we collapse. We have completely wacky energy bodies. It's not, you know, we're not really rooted and sustaining and nourishing ourselves usually, and particularly if we're activists. Uh, the heart jitta, samadhi, connection, the right kind of place to come from, um, which also implies wisdom, you knowing it doesn't belong to you anyway, actually. You know, so already as you're succeeding, give it over, give it back, support others if you really want to have a joyful heart. And the vimuksa, uh, keep reflecting, discerning, how's it going? Do I need to change track? Do I need more? Do I need less? That's also a faculty of wisdom. When those are balanced in harmony, the Buddha taught, these will support whatever you want to bring to fruition successfully. So this, this bodhicitta, this heart, you know, we, we can develop that as a personality. And that's the first level of motivation that many of us come into in this practice. But inevitably, we're going to meet suffering. Even if we have all of that on track, and it's going really well, there's always the wild card of karma vipaka, what fruits from the causes and conditions, whether in your personal stream of consciousness, whether in your familial or collective or communal, or just as we now on the planet, you know, we're reaping this great planetary karma, which is very toxic. You know, that, uh, that then, then the motivation has to deepen. You have to be here not just to get success and happy things. You have to be here to deepen the practice. You have to have a different kind of containment 
to actually begin to work with the shadow and the suffering and to realize, first of all, there's not something going wrong. As uh, I think Seb mentioned this morning, that within the suffering there's opportunity. There always is. And so this is why it's understood that you can't get a Buddha without Mara. You can't get awakening without suffering. You can't get the two are like this the whole way. And we, we sort of approach it like, you know, the spiritual path, I'm going to get rid of all that stuff. And just how, you know, that's what I thought when I first ordained. I was going to sit on some pink cloud and float away to Nirvana. Honest to God, I sort of had that internal model. I was in, such, in for such a shock, you know, within about three days after shaving my head, like realizing I was, I was living with people that were driving me nuts and I was probably going to live with them for a decade or so, which was actually true. And, you know, and I couldn't stand anything or anyone. And, um, and I, didn't, I shouldn't have hatred and anger because I was a nice Buddhist nun, but then realizing I actually wanted to go to war. And um, I did actually really hate everyone. So it was quite, it was a very, it, it posed a very profound existential crisis for me because my spiritual persona just didn't add up to the reality of the depth of my uh, uncooked. Um, you know, primitive rage and competitiveness. And I mean, God forbid one should be competitive in the Buddhist world. I mean, I used to I used to be so competitive. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not, but I was. You know, we had, and I think it was because we were at the bottom of the pile as nuns that made me even more competitive. So, you know, I remember that I'd kind of like, I'd be com- we can't have, you can't be competitive over much in a monastic life, I, I promise you. <laughs> you really can't. But what I was competitive was about my square of sitting mat and where I wanted it. And then the actual machinations and manipulations my mind would go through to secure my spot, the optimum spot, you know, like getting up like two hours early, like rushing to the, the sitting. And then it was, when it was usurped by someone, you know, the levels of meltdown. And, and I knew it was absurd. I would be having this, this is absurd. You're mad. You know, this is, and I couldn't stop it. You know, I couldn't stop this madness. You know, this is my cup, my tin cup. You know, someone's... But that is the whole thing. You actually see the madness of this acquisition, you know, in, in, the, in the mind. So to this, this second motivation, it's actually like Ajahn Chah said, don't try and be a bodhisattva. Don't try and be a Buddha. If you're going to be anything, be an earthworm, because at least it's useful. Because the earthworm is going to go down through the mud. You know, the, 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 the bodhicitta are going to go down through these places in our psyche, honestly, authentically. And there's no shame in it, because we all share massive amounts of manure for our awakening you know it's all good stuff it's not great stuff when it's unconscious and then it kind of has this affect depression of of irritation of you know addictive behaviors but once we get down to those root energies that we're wired into then we then we then we you know the mindfulness there's a middle way we don't have to be born into them, we don't have to reject them, we don't have to repress them. We're mindful of. So there's a Buddha called mindfulness, the flood stopper. It stops that flood of moving out on those energies. That's why, you know, the mindfulness movement is actually, in many ways, 
on track with, I mean, there's lots of issues around it, I know, but the actual, if it's not too extracted from the supporting factors in the context, it's, you know, this is an important idea that we have a, we have, when we're mindful, we have more choice. When we're not mindful, we're patterned. We're just living out our unconscious patterning like a machine. And that's what a lot of us are doing as humans. It's rolling on the patterning. We're not really awakening to that and investigating it. And especially when that patterning's connected with these very painful sort of affects from these conditionings that we were talking about this morning that are very deep in our systems of the isolated, unconnected, traumatized self. Because actually that ripping out of the web of belonging that was experienced even millennia ago was a trauma and continues to be. Um, you know, so we're highly wired around that and you get, can get very triggered uh, into reactivity. So we have to have a lot of compassion and also a lot of understanding that the bodhicitta deepens as we're willing to work with the dukkha and the shadow. And even, you know, as we get good at that, even embracing it, as I said, the, the, the greater the pile of wood, the greater the blaze, the greater the suffering, the greater the transformation. So we've got, as a planetary level, we have an opportunity for great awakening, actually, through this planet burning down. There is a real possibility. We should hold out that that is on the cards and it doesn't need everyone. The tipping points don't... It's actually a small percentage for these tipping points to happen and profound shifts to take place at speed because we're working at speed now. You know, but then even deeper, this um, bodhicitta heart... Uh, you know, so is is to you know the the uh, the depth of the motivation begins to under begins to investigate the very premise we're off we're operating from, you know, me helping you. Um, and as that quote in the in the piece of poetry in the Diamond Sutra. The Bodhisattva saves all beings while knowing there aren't any living beings to save. You know, the sort of the Zen conundrum. Uh, It's not quite this, it's not quite that, it's not quite empty, it's not quite something. So Master Xinhua's great um, Chinese master, it's very influential in our practice, said, yeah, all conditions are emptiness, it's all empty but it's not really emptiness because there's wonderful existence. But wonderful existence doesn't really exist because it's empty. You know, so both things, what seem to be contradictory to each other, it's impermanent, but it's also here. So there's a sense of something happening, existing. You know, it's not exactly not here, but it's not exactly here because it's changing. So the depth of the bodhicitta heart is actually the, 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 it's the, it's the, it's the landing in the ground of the mind that has great compassion, not because I, from an ego state, are being nice to you. It's because that heart understands it is everything. There is no separation. It's a seamless gestalt 
You know, there is the boundaries that we cut out. You know, this is a, you know, through language. Eclipses the reality of everything being in one picture. And then when the heart knows that one picture, it's not just an intellectual, it's, a, it's, a, it's the intimate sensitivities, right? The Kuan Yin talks about her enlightenment in the Shrangama Sutra. She talks about, that's a whole text, which is very interesting, 25 bodhisattvas talking about their methods of awakening. And Kuan Yin, uh, Manjusri is tasked by, this is Mahayana, um, Manjusri is tasked Manjusri, the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, is tasked by the Buddha to have to go and rescue Ananda, who represents, in the Torah, in Mahayana, to some degree, the sort of very human disciple that goes astray, that gets it and is amazing. He memorizes all the suttas, but he doesn't quite always get everything. Um, so he's been led astray, and there's a whole story around that. And um, he's about to break his vows. And so the Buddha goes to Manjusri, go get Ananda, um, go get the woman that's um, Matangani's daughter. They're getting into something. So bring them to me. And then we have the 25 bodhisattvas explain their preferred methods of awakening and see, let's see which one is good for Ananda at this time. So they go through the sutta is like all these bodhisattvas going through their contemplations, what led them to awakening. And the last one is last one up is Avalokiteshvara, Kuan Yin, and Avalokiteshvara talks about their method. Avalokiteshvara is both male and female, not quite both can appear as both, and a, a fusion of both. And so Avalokiteshvara um, talks about the method of. This is a foundational text for the Zen school. Actually, Shrangama Sutra talks about. The, the primary practice of turning the mind back into itself. Is, you know, like from the Theravada, turning the mind back to the deathless, turn the mind to the deathless, that instruction. And um, man, uh, Kuan Yin talks about contemplating sound as her method. She contemplates sound. She's listening to the sounds of the world. And then comments, if there's no sound, could you say that's the end of listening? So what is when it's not hooked up to the object of experience? What is the mind when it's not known only through objective experience? What is? You know, is there no listening? There's still listening, right? You know, there's still, so what is that? And so then Kuan Yin talks about return, the method is called returning returning to the hearing nature or the mind returning to its own nature. So that's the method, turning back into the listening, into the jitta, into the heart, into the pure awareness. Rather than just looking at the objects of experience, this fundamental turning back into who's experiencing, who is. And at that moment, Avalokiteshvara's mind shatters and opens into a full awakening. And her his exclamation, the exclamation is, in that moment, suddenly realizing that the mind, the jitta, unified with all the Buddhas above and all sentient beings below. There's no distinction between that awakened mind and all living beings are all resident in the one awareness. It's all resident in this one awareness. 
and and that is that's why the depth of that wisdom and that you know this is a wisdom teaching actually Avalokiteshvara is also known the one that has the depth of compassion is merciful is responsive and is able to hear accurately and subtly the sounds of the world so the bodhicitta heart at the depth of compassion is really the contemplation we're hearing, not just literally hearing, but we're sensing with the mind, we're hearing the animals. We're hearing the cries of Syria and of uh, the peoples in the floods and the peoples in the fires and the loss of the fish and the salmon trying to get back to their spawning ground and being blocked by a dam. We're hearing the plants being crushed. We're hearing the Amazon being cut down. We're hearing the cries from the slaughterhouse. This is it's not an object to us anymore. You know, it is, we're, we're not only hearing, we're feeling that. We're feeling with empathetically. And once we're in that ground, then that's a very different shift. That's a radical shift. That is the heart-mind of the Bodhisattva that's willing to be here, uh, not just to listen, but to respond so Avadikiteshvara is responsive. A response has, this response happens, but it happens from the deep intelligence of the, Avadikiteshvara is the one that causes the depth of the mystery in the heart suit, causing the death, contemplating reality, and is responsive, authentically, mysteriously. And I said in the Kuan Yin Dharmas, the response and the way are intertwined inconceivably. You don't know of that response. At that level, it's mysterious. It's basically an alive, speaking, dynamic reality. Not dead, not desold, not meaningless anymore, but alive, connected, fluid, mysterious, magical, responsive, connected. You know, this heart... Um, and so Avalokiteshvara in the story, you know, this wasn't an, an awakening that just came in the, in the sort of, um, sort of, um, we call the, you know, the story of, uh, the, the, the kind of um, cultural story. One of the cultural stories in the Tibetan school of Avalokiteshvara gets this idea in his head. I'm going to go down and help the suffering Saha. This is the Saha realm that we're in, the dusty, difficult realm. Avalokiteshvara appears and for a few lifetimes trying to help living beings and then realizes how violent, ignorant, and hateful they are. <laughs> Not always. We have great sides, but, you know, let's face it, we, 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 we have a bit of a track record. So, you know, and it's said that for a few lifetimes, you know, she's just sitting in the cave trying to be peaceful and it doesn't really work. And at a certain point, Avalokiteshvara um, cries out to her guru, Amitabha, which represents the limitless light and life of the undying mind. Cries out for help, and it says that Avalokiteshvara shatters into a million pieces because she cannot handle the suffering. It's too great. From all that listening, that deep empathy, you know, we know that place where it's like, I can't, you know... It's a, a shattering. And in a certain way, when we talked about this word dismemberment, and we came up with that word as a stronger word, 
is a strong word. It's actually a shamanic term as well. You know, when you go through shamanic transformation um, at depth, which is part of our inheritance as um, part of our lineage as um, going way back into the mists of time, you're dismembered. You're dismembered. All the things you knew you were going to be, all the things that you are clinging on to, all the, you know, it's a, it's a moment of great fear because you're going into a journey and there's a, a dismemberment that happens. And it's a necessary dismemberment so you can be reshaped and reconnected with the actual ground of who you actually are and what you actually are and what you're really connected with and how freaking amazing that actually is. You know, so in Avalokiteshvara, this dismembering, this shattering, and in a certain way, the depth and the intensity of the suffering for this heart, for our human, for our vulnerable, small human heart, it, it's a relentless, it's relentless, it's relentless. And there's a certain place where it's just like, it's shattering us. We can't solve it, we can't fix it. It's, shat- it's like, and we can't, we haven't got a strategy. Well, we have strategies, loads of really great strategies. You know, there's green energy and there's cooperative collaborative economics and there's all sorts of great stuff emerging but there's also has to be a shattering of these false structures you know the patriarchy the white supremacy the things we were naming this morning the the rogue capitalism it has to shatter because it's killing us it's killing the planet it's killing life it's a it's the march of death so it has to shatter and we're in those times and it's it's pretty darn difficult to look at that every day as it downloads on the internet but that shattering you know there's wisdom here and underneath the deep intelligence there's there's wisdom you know there's there's something else that's you know we're not the only players here (laughs) there's a deeper intelligence that's operating the depth of the dharma the living dharma yeah but we are entering that journey and so that when that, you know, in Avalokiteshvara, when she cries out to Amitabha Buddha, Amitabha goes, well, what did you think would happen? You made these big vows. I'm going to be around to help all living beings. You know, you think it was going to be easy? You know, and so, okay, I'll help you. So Amitabha puts back, like sticks all the pieces back and then recreates Guan Yin Avalokiteshvara as this Chen Rezi in a Tibetan school as this beautiful, amazing being that suddenly now has 11 heads and a thousand hands and eyes, has a whole new configuration, a whole new form, and lots of cool powers to respond to the multifaceted challenges that are coming from every direction. You know, she has lassoes to tie up demons. She has axes to chop through you know, you need an axe sometimes. It's not enough to just go on Mani Padma. You need a fucking great big axe, you know, to sort of chop through all the, all the stuff coming through and get clear. She has um, darts to pierce the, living, the hearts of living beings. She has books of knowledge. If you want to learn about stuff, she has vases of sweet dew just to cool everyone down. She has moonstones to heal. She has lotus flowers to awaken. You know, she... She has a, these um, 42 kinds of primary response modalities. And this is a metaphor for, you know, Kuan Yin is a metaphor for the deepest heart, actually. 
It's at its core, it's awareness, knowing, presence, dynamic wisdom that is responsive. And that we're growing, okay, we're being dismembered, but we're also growing something else. You know, something else is growing in us. We're growing capacity, we're growing strength, we're growing clarity, we're seeing. Don't you think so much shadow coming out and we're seeing it for what it is? in a way that's been hidden, sometimes for centuries or for millennia or for a long time. You know, that these, as these, as these, we, we, we're not, we haven't got the, you know, we're not in the 1950s anymore (laughs) of, you know, being spoon-fed some sort of weird kind of disassociated psycho-reality. We're actually, (laughs) we're actually waking up and really seeing what's going down. It's just all out there and it's really confusing. But it's also really good because we're we're discerning, we're looking in the midst of the rubbish and we have to pull out these threads and seeing clearly the shapes and the narratives and the power dynamics and exploding them. So this strength, this clarity, but you know, at the at the base of all that is the importance of really reclaiming the heart. So the claiming this momentary practice of coming again and again to back to how is it now? Being aware, being present, listening. It's the practice of Kuan Yin, listening, listening, because that will be our root, I believe, for our reclamation, not only of ourselves, of our body, minds and hearts, our communities, but hopefully even of this planet you know, we have a small window of opportunity. It's not open for very long. It's not guaranteed. Um, but it's not impossible. And as, you know, humans, we've done the impossible before. And as Nelson Mandela said, it seems impossible until it's done. So I'm going to hand over to Seb to um, help us actually kind of ground in some way. <laughs> over to you, Seb. I'm, I'm bailing. <laughs> Great. <laughs> now I don't know if it's worse to go first or second. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.